Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. Some of you know Jason and Nicole very, very well. Um, if you don't know Jason and Nicole, uh, Jason actually grew up in this church, and then, uh, as they said in 2013, they moved, moved out to Saratoga Springs and were involved in playing in that church out there. And then a couple years later, Drew and Allie joined them and are on staff with them as well, too. Um, and so there is, um, there's just a really strong connection between our church and them and what they are doing. Um, Jason and Nicole were here for, I think it was four years, and then they left for Saratoga Springs right before we moved here. I know Jason because we were uh, at Tabor together. Um, we've sent VBS teams and vision teams and um, a lot of finances has gone out from this church to support that church plant. So it is really kind of a, a neat connection and a strong connection. And so they, um, so they're launching this. We have a couple of these in the back. I don't think we have enough for everybody, but we do have, I think, about a dozen of these that talk about what it is that they're, they're looking to do. And, uh, and it is pretty neat. I mean, they want to build a facility, but also a sports complex as well, too. Um, it's interesting because more and more churches are strategically doing things like this and that when they build their facility, they will build something that they can use on the weekend, but they also build it so that in some way it's able to generate revenue to pay for itself, you know, Monday to Friday. And so more and more, just because buildings are expensive and land is expensive and that kind of thing, they will build a facility that has that, that dual purpose. And ideally what happens is that after the, you know, the down payment, there's actually enough income from various rentals, whatever that may be, that you can pay for the mortgage and the lights and the heating and the cooling and, and all of these other kinds of things. And so that's part of what they're doing. But the other thing, too, is just that they have really come to a place where they're engaged in sports ministry. And so to be able to use that facility then throughout the week for that sports ministry as well. So some really neat stuff, some exciting stuff. They do have, you You heard how um, they were talking, they're working with the Timothy group and kind of trying to do an initial assessment. And so in here, there's, there's three different things. There's a piece of paper and then there's like a little bookmark. Um, and then there's also a, a code and a, a questionnaire um, we just got this this last week, but they're, if possible, please respond by March 12. Well, that's today. Uh, so if, if you want to get your response in um, for today. But I think they're just doing initial assessment, you know, if you would be interested in giving how much and that kind of thing. They're trying to figure out a few things. And, of course, prayer, right? Like where, where do they set up, what piece of land, location, um, that all becomes very strategic. So they unpack some of that a little bit more in the handout. It, it is pretty neat what's going on. But um, strong connection there and one that we want to continue to, um, to, to, to keep, keep moving forward with. The other thing, too, and you can pull up that, that picture now. Um, another thing that has uh, changed. So in regards to missions and missionaries and who we support, we take a certain percentage of the money that comes in. We basically tithe on the tithe. So when you guys tithe, uh, we then take 10% of that and we give that to various ministries. And a certain percentage of that goes to multiply. And so we have a chunk of money or a percentage of the money that comes in that is allocated towards multiply. 
Some of that has been going to Paul and Sarah Rogus. That's one missionary couple that we support. They're over in France. And then so far the rest has just been going in general to multiply, you know, just lights and toilet paper and whatever else, right? Well, so a little while ago, we were contacted by Stephen Humber, who is the, the local re representative, and he said, would you have any interest in also supporting Sarah and Ott and their family? Well, it's, it's kind of neat because actually Sarah and Joanne are really dear friends from college, and so um, they keep in close contact and will speak often and that kind of thing. Sarah is from Kansas. Um, Ott is a Thai national, and uh, so kind of a, a neat long story on... on uh, kind of what has been going on there. Um, about 25 years ago, there were three missionary families. They called themselves Team 2000. They moved to Thailand, and they did some neat stuff. And one of the first things that, uh, first ministries that they got going was they planted a church called the Life Center. Well, 20 years later, those missionary families have all moved on to different ministries. Well, it was Sarah and Ott who then became the pastoral couple at the Life Center. And so he served there as a pastor and has been there for several years. But then just recently, um, Stephen Humber describes it this way. He says, a leadership team for the Thailand MB Church Association was selected. And Sarah's husband, Ott, it's spelled O-Z-Z. -Z. It looks Oz, but it's pronounced Ott. That really threw me off because I always heard Ott, but yeah, but it reads Oz. Um, Ott. So anyway, Sarah's husband, Ott, was chosen to serve as the president for a four-year term of the National of the Thai MB Church Association. Very significant strategic leadership role for church planning um, and, and, and also just speaks to how well he is viewed by other Thai leaders. So they're actually moving north to Chiang Mai. And so um, the invitation was, would we be interested in taking some of those funds that we have allocated towards Multiply and and directing them towards Sarah and Ott. So leadership team talked about it, and we decided to do that. So we have adopted them, as I think adopt would be the right word, as another missionary couple that we want to support and pray for. Um, hopefully someday we can go visit. We still need to get some people over to France, actually, now they think about it. It'd be good to send a couple of you over to Thailand as well, too. So, um, so we will be seeing increased communication from them, newsletters, uh, postings, that kind of thing. So just want to make you aware of that, that, that that's another thing that has happened. So we've got Paul and Sarah August in France, and now um, Sarah and Ott in Thailand. So, and that's, yeah, that is a, that's a neat privilege for us to be able to be engaged in that as well. All righty, let's dive in here. So for this month, the, uh, the challenge or the sermon topic that we've been talking about is, is something that we're calling loud tables. And when we talk about loud tables, what we're really talking about is spiritual conversations in the home. And so last week, we looked at some research and some of the things that they had found about uh, in regards to that. And then this week, we wanted to try to find some examples from Scripture. It was kind of interesting because I, I couldn't necessarily find kind of a clear-cut example of home, family, sitting around dinner, having a spiritual conversation in scripture, right? Like those are some pretty tight parameters. Um, and if you know of any examples, let me know. I, I couldn't think of any or find any. But we do have lots of examples though, of spiritual conversations. And there's a great one that takes place in Acts 17. And so that's actually what I want to unpack with you today, because I think even in that outline and what he talks about in Acts 17 is a very valuable 
tool and outline for us not just to understand but to incorporate in some of our spiritual conversations and whether that is at home around the dinner table or with friends or strangers that you just met or that kind of thing there's there's some good stuff for there uh, to learn a little bit of background on on what's going on just because context helps a lot so in Acts 17 um, Luke who authored Acts he records Paul going to three different cities um, and, and with different results every time. So first they go to Thessalonica. Um, Paul's approach or a tactic is that he goes into the synagogue and he debates from Scripture and tries to prove to them that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the, 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 the means of salvation, of reconciliation with God. Um, he's there for three weeks, has some fantastic results, lots of converts, but there's another group that gets jealous and and really kind of turned violent, and so Paul leaves. Now, I would point out, though, that from that, we know a church formed simply because then later on, Paul's going to write First and Second Thessalonians, right? So even just those three weeks there were, were very profitable. Okay, so he leaves Thessalonica. He heads to Berea, so that's about 50 miles away. Again, goes into the synagogue, teaches, argues for Christ, that kind of thing. Um, they respond really well. They're like, oh, that's interesting. And then they go home and they look through the scriptures and they really engage with him well. But some of the disruptors up in Thessalonica hear that he's having success in Berea. And so then they travel down and cause a big uprising there as well too. So Paul leaves again. Um, but this time he travels to Athens and that's about 300 miles to the south. Um, there were a number of Jews there as well too, but there are also people groups um, and other people groups, and so he, he does still argue in the synagogue, but he also goes to the marketplace, um, and he has some public debate there, and it sounds like it's pretty respectable. I mean, everyone's kind of cur courteous. Um, Athens, there are idols everywhere, um, and so Paul is invited to a place called the Areopagus, um, which the Romans called it Mars Hill because these people wanted to hear more, and he has this this conversation or he's able to present there does a great job and then some people mock him and some people say well this is fascinating and we want to hear more and some people believe in Christ right so the responses are just all across the board and then by chapter 18 he's in another town right so the story moves along pretty quick so Acts 17 three towns kind of three approaches and three different responses um, I want to read to you the section out of Acts 17. It's a little bit longer, maybe about 20 verses, and then we'll, we'll start to unpack a little bit uh, what he said and, and uh, I think why he said it. Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, because he had gone on ahead of them, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on, about this. So Paul went out uh, from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Aeropagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. A little bit on Athens. So Athens, uh, capital of Greece, um, the, the commentators say that at this point Athens was in a period of decline, it was still recognized as kind of a hub of culture and of education, but in regards to like politics and commerce or economy, like it was, it was kind of on, on the downward slope, right? Like no one really kind of had respect for it in those regards anymore. Uh, one commentator wrote, the city was given over to cultural paganism that was nourished by idolatry, novelty, and philosophy. Another commentator said that it was, it was well known for art and amusement, but just completely devoid of any kind of moral authority, right? And even scripture tells us that the people of Athens, they always wanted to hear the latest idea, the new idea, whatever was new, whatever was trendy. They wanted to be the first in on it. Uh, verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. As Paul pointed out, there's idols um, everywhere. Um, and then, of course, he even finds this one altar, the unknown god. So you've got this city, they think that they're just the hub of culture, and, and education is a big thing, maybe there's a university or two there, but when it comes to politics and economics, the place is just kind of in shambles, uh, saturated with paganism, and everyone just wants to sit around, talk ideas, and it sounds like no one's actually doing anything productive, right? So that's the city of Athens. Scripture names the two main philosophies that Paul is up against, and it's fascinating because they are polar opposites in almost every way, and yet also completely opposite of the gospel. Um, verse 18 talks about the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. Epicureans believe that everything in the world was made up of atoms and that everything was governed by physical laws. 
And the best way to achieve happiness and pleasure was to submit to these laws of nature, live simply, uh, virtuously, without burdening oneself with worldly cares, do everything to avoid physical pain. They figured that gods did exist, but they were somewhere far away. Religion was not important. Just a very practical search for happiness, and, and pleasure and happiness were the ultimate end. So those are the Epicureans. Then you got the Stoics. The Stoics believed that God was everywhere, that he was in nature, that he was in the universe, that he was in man. And so therefore, if you're going to live in harmony with the universe, then you needed to strive for godly perfection of character and submission to the divine will. And you do this through virtuous living and self-control. And man conquered the world by conquering himself. And evil happened when men allowed passion to control him. Virtue, wisdom, goodness towards every living thing enable the individual to reach a perfect union in this God is everywhere, in everything, universal presence that, that governed all. And then you got Paul, right? And so his dilemma is that he has these two dominant worldviews, and so now he has to address both of them, even though they're completely opposite, and basically tell them, well, you're both wrong. And, now I, and I'm going to show you how. And so scripture gives us Paul's speech. Now, as an aside, and this is just my theory, I think we're probably dealing with more of an outline, just because by all accounts, Paul is a talker. Like, he once talked so late into the night, this guy fell out the window and died, and then, like, God had to miraculously raise him from the dead, and, like, he just talks a lot. So I have a hard time thinking that Paul is going to gather an audience, say, nine sentences, and just walk off the stage, right? My guess is that he was there for quite a while, and these are just kind of the highlights. What that means, though, is that we could probably spend a couple hours unpacking his highlights or his outline, but we're not going to. The first part that is, is yeah, Paul really meets them where they're at. Uh, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way that you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. When Paul arrived, he sees idols everywhere, and it talks about how his spirit was provoked, or, or it was agitated, right? Like the idols bothered him a lot. Now an idol is just, like the, the actual idol itself, like that's just wood, or stone, or metal, or that kind of thing. So in one sense, the idol is nothing. However, there are times, though, where there is a very real demonic entity behind that idol or associated with that idol. And so it's not that it's nothing. I mean, there is actually something demonic associated with that, right? So there, there's nothing good or okay or neutral about these idols. But Paul is still able to use that as a conversation starter with these people, right? And it's fascinating because even if someone's worldview is completely wrong, if, if, if you're careful, you can usually find something on which you agree. Now, let me just use an extreme an example to kind of highlight what I mean by this, right? If someone is into Wicca or witchcraft or sees themselves as a white witch or whatever, right? Like, we would say there's still demonic activity behind that, and that's a bad thing, and that kind of deal. However, are there points with which you would still agree? 
We both believe in the spiritual. We both believe in an unseen realm. We both believe in spiritual power uh, or that, you know, exerting a power that science can't really explain or, or define. Um, we actually both believe in good and evil. We would disagree on who gets to decide that, but we would believe that there is a good and evil, um, a right and wrong, and, and in a way we really actually both agree that some kind of morality exists. Um, and interestingly, we both want to be on the good side, whatever that is, right? So you can find common ground almost anywhere if you're, if you're willing to, to look for it. So Paul starts with this common ground because, I mean, in the storyline, right, like he is really agitated by all these idols. He still finds common ground. Then in verse 23, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So now Paul shifts, and he introduces God. He introduces Yahweh, right? Like, Paul is really kind of drawing a line in the sand, and he's starting to articulate the difference. A lot of religions will claim to worship God, um, and some will even claim to worship the God of the Old Testament or talk about common ground, but only Christians will articulate Jesus. Like, for us, Jesus is the line in the sand. And so whenever you can you articulate Jesus, right? Because that is, that is the one true God, right? I mean, Jews, Mormons, Muslims, like you say, they would say, oh, we worship God. You say Jesus, and you've just drawn a line in the sand, and you say, no, we worship Jesus. And our God will, like, uh, you know, af affirm Jesus, like Jesus is God, right? That is the difference. Don't settle for, like, well, we both worship God, right? It is we worship Jesus, Paul also lays out that God is great. He's the creator of all things. So this is a direct affront to that Epicurean and that Stoic worldview, right? Because Paul is now saying you're both wrong. God is the truth. Um, God is the creator. Like he really harkens back to Genesis 1-1 right at the beginning. God is the creator. He created everything. He does not live in temples made by humans' hands. God gave us life to everything. God is supreme. He is, God is not in the created. He is the creator, and we exist in the creation. But he's also close. He's not distant. He's great. He's all-powerful. And as much as this is as an affront or a pushback, I also think that there's an element of comfort in this. Right? Because people want to know, like, hey, where did I come from? And what are my origins? And can goodness be attained? And is God close? Or is God far? And why am I here? And what is the, the purpose of my life? So it's this, it, it, it really confronts their worldviews, but I think it also, there's an element of comfort in it as well, too. Verse 27, I had never noticed before. Uh, verse 27 is interesting. Um... And I think that 
the, I, I think I have some, some good-hearted, conservative, Midwestern friends who would be very uncomfortable with verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Some people have a really hard time with the idea of feeling God, um, of hearing God's voice, of the notion of God speaking to us. And so the idea that an unbeliever would feel their way toward God and even find God, like that's going to be really hard for some people to, to accept. And yet here we have Paul speaking to a very secular pagan audience, and in a way he's telling them, he's like, like, look, there have, may have been times where your heart felt an inclination towards the one true God. Now, the heart can be deceptive, and we don't follow it blindly all the time, but, but there may be times where it's drawn towards the one true God, and if you follow that feeling, you may find the one true God. Now, the truth of that's going to be laid out in Scripture. You always need Scripture. But I think that if you listen carefully to someone's spiritual journey, you may find this kind of language, right, where they talk about feeling their way towards the one true God. And I would say that, once again, this just creates a great talking point or connecting point for you in your conversation with them. I saw a video clip yesterday of Jim Carrey. You guys remember Jim Carrey, popular movie star, silly actor, all these movies, that kind of thing. So he's in a bunch of movies um, and always just played like really extreme, silly, kind of wacky parts. Then I think he went through a season of kind of depression, depression and hard times and kind of redefining. And in this clip, and it looked like just kind of like some homemade cell phone clip, he's talking about pain and suffering, acknowledging pain and suffering, and, and not ignoring it. And, it. and it really kind of leads you to a place where either you, you have a choice, where you can either choose a path of, of bitterness and resentment, or you can choose a path of forgiveness that was really modeled for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. And I, I never thought I would see Jim Carrey advocating for Christ on the cross. Um, I now have like 100 questions for that man. Um, I'm not sure where all he is at in his spiritual journey, but to see Jim Carrey advocating for the forgiveness modeled by us by Jesus Christ on the cross was mind-boggling. And awesome, but mind-boggling. Fantastic. The next part is impressive. Paul says this, Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for, and then there's a couple quotes, In him we live and move and have our being, as even as some of your own poets have said, for we are all indeed his offspring. Paul is actually quoting from a poet, um, Ep Epimenides, um, who said, for in him we live and move and have our being. And then he has a quotation from two other poets, uh, for we also have his offspring. So Paul knew the secular poets and the philosophers well enough to incorporate their thoughts and their words to prove his point, which is pretty impressive. Um, if you're going to discuss someone's worldview, the more you understand their worldview, the more you understand their philosophy, it really does help us understand it and engage in that conversation better. And if you even know it to the point where you're able to quote some of their own people to prove Jesus, like that's pretty good. 
right? So, but to understanding their, where they're coming from on that. And then in the end, Paul has, he ends with this warning or this call for truth. Um, and again, a really kind of an affront to their philosophies, but this, this call to repentance. Being then God's offspring, we ought to not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, and then here's kind of this next line in the sand, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, he's referencing Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul reiterates that God is not a man-made idol, that God is supreme. And I'm, the, the phrase that, that God overlooked, the, the times of ignorance God overlooked, that's kind of interesting. Um, but I know exactly what he means when God says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. It's at that point where Paul is saying, you need to make a decision. The call is for everyone to repent. It's yes to Jesus or it's no to Jesus. You don't get to sit on the fence like you, you need to decide. And even if you felt your way towards God, that's awesome. But to enter into that right relationship with God, the call to repentance. Paul's message is, has various responses. When they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again. Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Resurrection is actually a really key part of, of how we understand what's going on. And, maybe, and uh, maybe we don't talk about it enough, but when you think about it, I mean, we believe that it happened to Jesus. We believe that it did happen to others. There's another verse that talked about other people being rising from the dead uh, at the crucifixion. Uh, we believe that it happened to us spiritually. We believe that it's going to happen to us physically when Jesus comes again. I mean, really, if you take out the resurrection, like everything about Christianity crumbles. And it, and it was this resurrection of the dead that was the stumbling block for them. Like they just, that was their big hang-up. In your families and in your spiritual conversations, some of you have probably done this intuitively, um, perhaps, or maybe you've missed part of it, but we, but we begin where we meet them where they're at. Like, like where are you at right now? Is, the, is there common ground, right? Um, find the truth in, in what they said. Use that as their starting point. And even if someone has elements of, like, feeling their way towards God and their story, that's okay. Use that. Like, don't shut that down. But then from there, we direct the conversation towards Jesus, right? Whether it's with the home or strangers, right? Jesus is the defining characteristic. And then he ends with the challenge. What did Jesus call us to do? What does scripture call us to do? Is it that first step of repentance? Have we done that already? Is it some other more detailed step of obedience? Like what's the next step? What's the challenge? Jason and Nicole are building a sports complex. Why? Because the people of Saratoga Springs love sports love sports it's huge building a sports complex is a fantastic example of meeting someone where they're at right like this this is big for them and then from that 
using that to direct the conversation towards Jesus, and then ultimately a call for repentance or that challenge, or, or what is the, the next step. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, these examples of spiritual conversations in Scripture. Lord, we pray for Jason and for Nicole and for Drew and Allie and for the Greenhouse team, Lord, as they prepare to, uh, to launch on this campaign. And God, we ask for miracles. We ask for miracles in finding land. We ask for miracles in, in financial donations. We ask even for miracles in, in staffing and favor with locals and officials and permits. And Lord, we pray that that church would grow and have a mighty impact. And thank you for their vision of meeting people where they're at and directing them towards Jesus and then calling them to repentance. And Lord, we, I pray the same for us, for here. Lord, that um, as we interact and work and move in our communities, that you would lead us in, in conversations. We're able to, to meet people where they're at, find that common ground, um, and then from that, lead people towards Jesus and then some kind of um, commitment or act of obedience or, or call to repentance. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for another beautiful day. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.